Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Yeah, shark attack. Yes, it is. Give me a temperature reading. 98.6. What? No, that's my internal body temperature. Oh, <laughs> you got to put a swab in your nose. The uh, No, what's the outside temp? I don't know. Feel like it's, it's, it's hot. It feels like 105 and a half. That's a good day. I should be there. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 75, sunny, very pretty day here. And I'm... But screw the sun. I got Brad Feld, good friend of mine. I rarely get to see. He's in Boulder for the summer. He lives there. And Brad's been on the podcast. I'm going to do as quick an intro as possible because people can go listen to the old stuff. But I'll do some links. Brad currently is uh, one of the founders of uh, Foundry Group, Boulder-based uh, venture capitalists. Uh, they manage two, three, four trillion dollars at this point. Doesn't matter. They're big and great. Brad knows more about community and entrepreneurship than pretty much anybody. And I'm lucky to have him as a mentor. I cold called Brad basically in 2006, said, Brad, hey, Fred, kind of knew each other from the blog, maybe, at least I knew him. Uh, Pre-iPhone, cold called him 2006 uh, via Fred Wilson for my idea wall strip. Brad uh, committed over the phone. And that's what I thought a VC was. They just answer phones and hand out money. Uh, <laughs> and to this day, Brad has always just handed me money. So I've tried to make money. And we've got a pretty good track record uh, together. And knows my kids. Obviously, he's good friends with my wife. Just sent her a lead for real estate in Phoenix. The guy is like, the guy moves traffic like nobody else in a digital world. So... I can talk about anything. Everybody wants me to talk about investing all the time. But today I'm going to talk about two subjects that are near and dear to both of us. Building community. And Brad is also a founder of Techstars, which is like I, the first day I said, you know, don't not from a branding issue, but this is like DeVry for startups. And <laughs> uh, and they are, except with uh, better branding. And then you know, they're in like 50 countries. It's an unbelievable company, but we're not going to talk about that today. We're talk, well, a little bit, because we're going to talk about community and we're going to talk about health. Uh, and by health this time, last time he was on, we were talking early COVID and he's been dead on trying to battle this at a local level and national level. But we're going to talk about mental health and therapy because both him and I talk about this probably half the time of our time together. We just are open books to each other about what we go through. So everybody should have friends like that where you can talk about that. So we're going to share, hopefully, if he's willing, some of those thoughts. And he writes about all this on his blog at felt.com. Oh, okay, we're out of time. Just tell Brad I'm tired, Canute. Yeah, I'll just text And uh, I'm going to just take a bath. So hopefully everybody enjoyed that uh, if you want. No. So, Canute, let's get Brad on the uh, Zoom-ish, phone-ish, whatever things you've got connected to the internet. Sounds good. We'll patch them in right now. Hey, oh, ring, ring, ring. Bradley. How are you? I'm fabulous. Are you calling for money? I'm calling 25K. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. I'll just wire it to the normal account. Yes, sir. Ellenlinson.co. 
Meanwhile, you're sending my wife leads. <laughs> kind of like, it's unbelievable. First of all, she's the best agent of all time. Like she's been doing this for not that long, but uh, she knows her shit. And um, so you're talking to my wife. Your wife is more fun to talk to than you. And you're pretty fun to talk to. <laughs> I you, you've seen you, me. You are, you've so, seen you, are me. So, you are so lucky that she puts up. With you. <laughs> she's, who says she's putting up with me? It's kind of like, I'm so lucky that Amy puts up with me. Yeah. Half of our discussion is, hey, how's therapy? And the other half is, why are those two ladies putting up with us? And then we run out of time and then you send me checks. It's a perfect relationship. Perfect relationship. (laughs) (laughs) So is Amy with you right now? Uh, She is. She is in the other room. Um, I have have, uh, one meal a day. I have a food fairy, which is lunch. So she brings me lunch. And uh, I just had my, my today's version of uh, lunch at home, day number 182. So you're 182 in the house in Boulder? Or outside of Boulder, no, I remember. That's, that's probably not right. Let's see. How many days? Let me ask my computer. How many days? <laughs> I don't even three, know how to 11, do this stuff. 20, 149 days. Today is day number 149 at home. Wow. And in one home. In one home, I've left three times, and each time I've left to go to the hospital. Because oh yeah, yeah. I don't want to even go there because our hospital stores. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I have a book until I have a little until Monday, but hospital. to talk about real things. But uh, yeah. no, I, I I've been I've been just hunkered at home, right on the edge of Boulder. Um, we we often spend the summers uh, in the mountains in Colorado, and mm-hmm. this year I'm afraid to go to the mountains during the summer because there's too many people from outside Colorado in the mountains. I think most mm-hmm. people that, you know, really, I mean, uh, in, in many of the mountain towns, uh, there's been a huge influx of people from the coasts and we have a place in Aspen, huge influx of Texans. And, um, I'm just uncomfortable. Too many people in too small space with, uh, less compliance around things that I care about in terms of safety. And so it's just been easier to stay home. And you are in a position where it's important that you make that decision. I feel super fortunate that I, I can. Yeah. So, uh, Brad, today I want to talk about two things. I want to clear them with you before we start, because you know, um, one is, you know, the new book, but the whole idea of community and how you saw this in Boulder and, and made that happen and willed it to happen with the group around you and the new book. And the second thing is, you know, how we both believe, and we could just manifest itself in all kinds of things, but uh, therapy, everybody should try it. Is that okay? Sure. All right. So, uh, spin the wheel. Which, where do you want to start? Uh, well, let's start with uh, let's start with the startup community way, which is a new book, and uh, and end with uh, an exploration on Planet Howard and Planet Brad. Great. So, the community way. This is book number two about community. You love writing. We all know why writing's important. You love writing. It's part of your own therapy and giving back. But what? brought on this new book in 2017 i started getting the question and i started noticing the question from people uh around the world that i was engaging with uh that was some form of hey we've been doing the startup communities thing for a while what now what's next what should we do next and where that where that arc came from was that in 2010 at the tail end of the global financial crisis, as everybody was having a massive 
you know, existential freak out about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the themes that started to emerge was that the way out of the global financial crisis was innovation and entrepreneurship. And I felt strongly about that. I've been involved as you know, an entrepreneur and an investor in companies since I started my first company in 1987. And my, you know, my whole focus and my worldview was uh, around uh, the importance of a startup community in a city. And it was against the backdrop at a moment in time where two things were happening. One was everybody was saying innovation and entrepreneurship was the key to the future economic health of you know, planet Earth. And at the same time, there was still uh, a mantra that existed that is, was, if you're really serious about starting a company, you should just come to the Bay Area. And that was not my worldview. Um, I lived in Boston until 1995. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I uh, uh, went to school in Boston, lived there till 1995, started my first company there, sold it while I was there, and then moved to Boulder with my wife, Amy, in 1995, and have been here since. And while I've invested a lot in the Bay Area and spent a lot of time in the Bay Area, and there are amazing things about uh, the startup community in the Bay Area, uh, I've never believed that it's the only place that you can build meaningful companies. And more importantly, I really uh, had, had come to believe, even by 2010, that it was important for every city in the world to have entrepreneurship and innovation as a key part of what was going on in the city. Not the only thing, but uh, as a component of all the things that created vibrancy in a city. And if you look at you know historical cities that were once uh, incredibly vibrant that then had collapsed over time in the U.S., Detroit is common example uh, of that phenomena, uh, you saw periods of time where there was an enormous amount of innovation and entrepreneurship uh, in Detroit, obviously around the auto industry and not just the car companies, but all of the different companies that participated in that ecosystem. In 2010, uh, an article came out that was talking about innovation and entrepreneurship and said there's some examples of cities where this is happening already, and they named the Bay Area New York, Boston, and Boulder. And of those four cities, Boulder is different. Uh, Boulder's only 100,000 people. We literally could fit the entire city of Boulder um, in one city block in downtown Manhattan, right? We'd, we'd probably have to pick Midtown so we get some high buildings, but we could all cram into a couple of skyscrapers. So you had these three very large uh, population areas, big cities, and then you had this one small city. And so I, I started down the path of trying to figure this out. And that resulted in the book that I came out with in 2012 called Startup Communities. And in 2012, that phrase didn't exist. And so it was really rewarding to look back in 2017 and sort of see the phenomena globally of essentially what has been the democratization of innovation and entrepreneurship throughout the world. And even by 2017, people were no longer saying, uh, you know, if you want to start a company, you need to start in the Bay Area. There are many, many, many other great success stories of companies and then cities that were really evolving uh, in significant ways because of the success of multiple companies, one company or multiple companies, and then the entrepreneurial recycling of both money and experience that happens. And lots of examples. One of my my favorite in the moment right now is Ottawa uh, because of Shopify and just the sure. incredible and success. And in an, and amazingly Toronto, like I hate giving Toronto any credit because they didn't start it, but yeah, now it's moved to Toronto in a way. Of course. And, you know, Toronto and Waterloo in some ways are an example of a pair of cities. I like to refer to them as a binary star. They're independent, but they revolve around each other. Very mm-hmm. similar to, to Boulder and Denver, uh, how mm-hmm. they're separate, but revolve around each other. So 
uh, again, in 2017, I was starting to get this question. Uh, a friend of mine, Ian Hathaway, who's my co-author on the book, suggested that we write a sequel, not, a, not an update, but a sequel. And so we started working on that in 2017, trying to answer that question. Okay, what, what next? Like now that we've been working on our startup community and pick your city for four or five years, what should we do? Um, a year in, uh, Ian and I uh, had written a lot, maybe 40,000 words, but we really felt like what we'd done sucked. Uh, we weren't very happy with it. You know, some of the stuff we'd done was okay, but like it just, it didn't have a, a center. Like what was the reason that this, this, this book existed? And he called me up one day and he said, uh, I have the, the framework that we're going to build this book around. I said, okay. And he said, a startup community is a complex adaptive system. And we should view a startup community as a complex system. And we should use complexity theory to help people understand what to do to help evolve their startup community. And that's where we took the book from there. Um, today, we you know, came out with this book in April of, uh, we, we really finished in April 2020. So just as the COVID crisis had begun, uh, it came out at the end of July. It takes a couple of months for traditional publishers to go from your final manuscript to an actual book. And interestingly, again, while the whole book is built around this notion of evolving startup communities using the idea of complex systems and complexity theory, it, it didn't occur to either of us, of us in 2018 that the book would be coming out in the middle of the collision of four complex systems that were profound at a moment in time. And those four complex systems are all part of what is the COVID crisis. Uh, it's the health crisis, which is a disease. It's an economic crisis, which was generated by the health crisis. It's a mental health crisis, uh, which is resulting from the dynamics that we've been having to deal with as humans in the context of both the health and the economic crisis. And, you know, there's some very, very powerful and visible uh, leaders who are now very openly talking about their own struggles during this period of time. Um, Michelle Obama on our podcast the other day talked about how she's been struggling with low-grade depression uh, for the last couple of months. Uh, HBO just has a film that came out called The Weight of Gold, uh, which uh, Amy and I were one of the underwriters for, along with Dave Morin uh, and Britt Morin and a number of other people. Uh, Michael Phelps is one of the leads in it, talking about how these incredible Olympic athletes uh, struggle with depression and how that impacts their dynamics as high achievers over a period of time. And it's, it's just one of these things that for so many years in our society has had massive stigma associated with it. And one of my goals in the last five or six years has been to eliminate that stigma. And it's in this moment when we have this intense crisis, uh, that's another one that's playing out. And the fourth of these complex systems that's a crisis is a, a racial equity crisis. And you know, we've had a racial equity crisis in the U.S. since the inception of the U.S., but again, amplified in this moment by all of the other pressures that as society we're having. So when I, and I'll, I'll, I'll end with this, when I scale back from the book that we wrote uh, and called it very deliberately the Startup Community Way, many of the ideas and concepts in the book can be applied to any of these crises because they're all complex systems. And reframing how we as human beings interact with stuff uh, as it's unfolding in a complex system is very important to explore. Yeah. And you're distributing it the old-fashioned way. Yeah. So I, this is my seventh book. Uh, I published them all with Wiley, uh, which is a, a very large traditional publisher. 
there are physical books, uh, and there are also, you know, available via ebook, primarily Kindle, but on any ebook platform. Uh, there will be an uh, audio book out probably by the end of September. And uh, it's been an interesting experience for me writing. I wrote my first book in 2010. So, you know, I've done seven books now in 10 years. And I've tried some other stuff beyond working with a traditional publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, we created, we created a, my partners at Foundry Group and I created a publishing company called FG Press uh, that we published a couple of books with and uh, ultimately shut down. Like we, we, we got very good at the mechanics or the team that we put together got very good at the mechanics of publishing a book, but didn't solve the problem that we were trying to address in the first place, which is that uh, the traditional publishing infrastructure is really awful uh, at sales, marketing, and community building around the content. Sure. Uh, so we 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 failed we failed at that business. We tried it, but we failed. Um, we also uh, have I've I've explored a number of other uh, modes of trying to publish, and you know each time have defaulted back to using uh, the traditional publishing infrastructure. Um, it's it's an interesting moment in time though, because now that I've written uh, seven books, and I really understand when I wrote the first couple of books, I didn't quite understand what my goal was. And I think that's one of the challenges when you're writing a book. Now that I've done seven, I'm pretty clear on what my goal is. And going forward, uh, I'm rethinking how I approach this as I've got you know, a number of books with, on different topics in process with different co-authors or by myself, uh, but also other writing that has become interesting to me beyond the type of writing that I've been doing up to this point. Yeah, I mean, it's a labor you know, I write every morning. You're not sure if you're every morning again, but you're often. But it's the muscle that has produced the best results for my, you know, investing and joy and community. I mean, I think the biggest thing about COVID is, the, and again, you talk about complex, is the community's change. Now, luckily, if you didn't have a community before, it's harder than ever to start one for the moment, but also easier than ever to pivot into a different type of community than ever before. Well, the dynamics are radically different, right? We're, yeah. we're in a mode where uh, all the existing relationships that you have are largely uh, virtual now. We have technology infrastructure where that is uh, possible to operate very effectively, right? In January of 2020, if you had told somebody hey, uh, by the summer of 2020, uh, almost everyone who works in an office is going to be working from their house. And instead of getting going to physical meetings and traveling around, they're just going to go from Zoom room to Zoom room uh, or from conference call to conference call. That person would have said, you're out of your mind. You can't, you can't, you know, business I will that person. I think I called you out of your mind and you said, get a therapist. Right. And, and, you know, here we are, right? Like the technology exists, the infrastructure exists behavior change was required, uh, lots of incumbent resistance points, which often, you know, the incumbency effect is often the inhibitor of innovation and progress anyway. Think about medicine, right? Telemedicine made 10 years of progress in four weeks uh, in April of 2020, because all of a sudden, uh, every doctor uh, on the planet realized that they couldn't get together with their patients for a variety of reasons, including lockdown. Uh, and every patient, uh, well, I shouldn't say it this way, but many patients didn't want to go to the hospital. That was the only place you could go. And unless you had COVID, it was actually the worst place to go. 
And if you had COVID, the right place to go is a hospital. But if you didn't have COVID and you had something else going on, going to the hospital was probably not the right place. And at the minimum, you know, not 100% of people, obviously, but uh, all of a sudden using existing technology infrastructure, the incumbents getting out of the way. You know, the federal government saying this HIPAA thing, forget it. You don't have to use a certain HIPAA compliant piece of software anymore. Just whatever you use with a doctor is totally fine. Um, insurance companies getting out of the way and saying, you know what? Uh, yeah, we don't have the right billing codes for this stuff, but uh, just do it and we'll figure it out. Uh, hospitals getting out of the way. Hospitals saying, you know what? We need to get people out of the hospital, so let's just spin up uh, a telemedicine service, even though it's not perfect, and make sure uh, that any of the patients that want to come in, before they come in, we actually do a consult with them to see if they need to actually come in. Uh, so the incumbency behavior shifted dramatically. And that links back to your question about community, right? All of a sudden, historically, we've had two types of community development. One is in-person, right, where you get together with people and you build relationships and you develop community that way. And then the other is online. And uh, the online communities, which people who are younger will say, well, that was a function of Twitter and Facebook and you know, maybe LinkedIn and you know, today, uh, TikTok. And then... In the past, though, and you're old enough to remember this. I don't know. You remember the well, Howard? Remember that? I don't. What was the well? The well was one of the first online uh, uh, bulletin boards. You know that was available first on a bulletin board system, but then on the internet. Back when I was a, you know, when I first got a computer, you could dial up and you could join a virtual community. Uh, that was a bulletin board system, and you could interact with people, and you could share, you know, stories, and you could have software exchanges, and you could share you know, tricks and tips for whatever the latest Apple II game was, Ultima Three. if you wanted to get the cheat codes for it, like all the normal stuff that we now see online, all that stuff existed in the 1980s, but it was just very, very narrow set of users. Um, So the evolution of those virtual communities that existed online are now pervasive. And in this moment, we have the collision of those two things. So there's a lot of people, I think, at the beginning of this crisis, maybe in the beginning of the Panic by Friends episodes, I don't know how many of the VCs, when you said, hey, are you going to do deals? Uh, people said, uh, I don't know, doing deals virtually, if you've never met a, an entrepreneur in person, it's going to be hard. I'm not really sure how that's going to work. And I certainly heard that from a lot of GPs. And then today, you know, the number of investments that are happening are just continuing to click along. And there's different dynamics. Some of them are harder. Some of them maybe are, in some ways, a little easier. Uh, but they're happening. Good point. Yeah. Right. As humans, we adopt to it. We adopted so fast. Like I was pencils down, zoom up. That's my cute little tagline. Uh, you know. So we started to show you were early on because you understood like the people. We we are a little late to panic. So let's get a hold of ourselves. That was the idea of panic with friends. Now I'm trying to have friends on that go. Okay, we should be panicking. Uh, we're still not out of our homes. NASDAQ's higher than it, when it was. Some of it makes sense. But let's be honest, we're doing terrible battling this stuff other than for people that are in the cloud. So, yes, the overwhelming thing was pencils down. Let's see how it goes. Uh, what I've seen over the last three months, including our own fund, is, uh, hey, you know, if the only thing you haven't done is met them in person – and you would do, it used to be like Fred would say, oh, if you if the price is the only thing that matters, uh, do the deal, you know, that you don't like. Uh, and now I would say if, you know, the physical looking in the eye across a table 
is the only thing that separates you from doing the deal, I think it's okay to do a deal. You know, if you got that, you know, everything else right. So that you were seeing that happen. Obviously, there's going to be unintended circumstances of this. Uh, even with Teladoc, I think the unintended circumstances, the doctors are willing, but man, what a change to their business models. You know, maybe they'll see more patients eventually, but with the, all the implementations, going to a dentist, going like right now, it's horrible for the doctors, practices at least, because they just can't do the revenue because they can't get together and get organized. So they were so behind the technologies there, but the industry isn't because they, they got hit by the tidal wave. So I think that's, I think you nailed it. I wouldn't keep going on it. Like you nailed it. Um, it, it, this is incredibly, incredibly challenging yeah. for many types of businesses. And what we will, what, what I expect will emerge from this is a massive acceleration of change uh, where many things that would have happened over the next decade are now going to happen in the next year or two. Uh, mm. Let me, you know, here's a non here's here's a non controversial one that people have been messing around with since the beginning of the internet, which is food delivery. It has never made any sense to me why to me grocery, still. right? Why grocery stores exist? All a grocery store is a giant grocery store, not your corner store that has you know your friend that you know you go and you hang out and you chat with at the at, at the corner package store. The giant grocery store never has made any sense to me. In the late 90s, there were several attempts uh, to eliminate the giant grocery store. One of the infamous ones is a company called Webvan that people may remember, which was uh, going to be food delivery. But it was not the only one. There were probably another 10 or so that were all complete, complete failures, but at smaller levels, although a few of them got bought by grocery store chains. All of a sudden, in 2020, in a very short period of time, Grocery stores became food warehouses, which is all they are, right? They're just distribution points for food. And if you want to order groceries online, you can. If you want them delivered to your house, you can pay an incremental fee. Or if you want to drive by the grocery store and have somebody put them in the back of your car and never have to get out of your car, that's those two models exist. We would have probably gotten to that point over the next decade, and all of a sudden, a huge number of people that were not doing that were forced to do that or decided to do that or realized they could do it. And that transformation happened very quickly. There's a bunch of others, but then you go to the other end of the spectrum. Do people think that the restaurant industry as it existed in February 2020 look anywhere like what it looked in 2020 in you know February or December of 2021? I don't. I think that it's an entire industry that's going to have structural change. Um, another example would be K through 12 education. Uh, we've been spending the summer in the U.S., at least in my mind, in complete and utter denial about the reality of the fall. And from where I sit, there is no way that K through 12 uh, back to school works. And that could be wrong, and I'm wrong hope, about plenty. We hope we're wrong, but there's no way we're wrong. Right? I, you know, it would be great if it did, because there's so many challenges if you can't send your kids to a physical school. We're already having the experience in Colorado. We had all in Boulder uh, and Denver, the major school districts were all going to go to, you know, open up part-time, you know, with two, two days a week, different groups of kids, kids isolated from each other in their little pods, da 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 da, da. And in the last week, um, three of the major front-range school districts all went complete remote. 
and just said, well, we can't do it. Parents don't want to do it. Kids don't feel safe. Parents don't feel safe. Teachers don't feel safe. We can't figure out how to make this work. And unfortunately, we have so underinvested both from, uh, you know, as a country from public infrastructure side, but also in terms of innovation in transforming K through 12 education. But now all of a sudden it's moving very, very quickly. There, there are numerous examples of real innovation uh, and real efforts around new approaches to uh, distance learning for K through 12 that are not just going to be available to rich people. And that's really important because, you know, I had a friend tell me the other day, well, the, the fall thing isn't that big a deal for me because I just with, you know, a couple of my friends, we hired, uh, you know, we have eight kids between us. We hired a teacher. We're paying the teacher way more than the teacher was making teaching in public school. And she's just going to teach the kids full time. And they're just going to rotate from house to house. And I said, congratulations, that's nice, but you're rich and you can afford to do that. There's an awful lot of people in the world, certainly in the United States, who can't afford to do that. And so, you know, how does it work for them? And the person sort of looked at me and said, yep, got it. <laughs> right? So we're, we're in this mode where so many, I mean, we could go through virtually all of the things that over the last 20 years, the internet and technology has had influence and impact on, but suddenly we're in this extraordinary shift and acceleration of the shift. And I, I'm not a believer that we wake up one day and the pandemic's over. Um, I'm not a believer that the vaccine magically comes out and everybody gets better. I mean, that is so well put. And I think that's why I keep doing the podcast, right? Like I, it's growing too. So it's fun. And Knut, I think the way Knut and I do it, you know, Knut is like um, MacGyver. I just solves problems, and I'm like uh, the car. The just <laughs> you're, the problem. you're the problem. He's driving I, everything. I, I, and he just says, "He talks you. back." So, <laughs> so are you Kit? Are you are you are you Kit or are you MacGyver's car? I'm Kit the ugly guy in Magnum PI too. The what I was going to say though, Brad, is like the data from talking to so many smart people over a hundred podcasts here is. Two things. It's okay to write checks. We've learned that. The financial system is a complex system. The complex system got stronger. The market's very complex system got stronger. Certain aspects of the market ain't coming back. Okay, so don't be in denial. The third thing is telemedicine, great. One side was ready for it. The other side isn't. So that is a pain, right? That is a real pain point to get to the structural future where this needs to work people. It's great to bring down costs. You won't get $300,000 medical bills that you, one person owes 1500 on, another person owes 50 grand on, the other guy owes 500 grand on. So telemedicine has to come cross, board, cross state doctors, pick your own doctor. Everybody focused on keeping their costs down and staying healthy. But the next thing though is how in denial this country is about like this is just going to magically disappear. It's wonderful if it did, but that's just such lunatic thinking. You know, we know where it comes from, right? It's, it's, well, it's a natural human tendency to have complete denial about the thing that is the real problem. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from a political perspective, this is not new because even the Spanish flu in 1918, right, there was incredible denial from the political infrastructure that the Spanish flu in 1918 was a big deal uh, until all of a sudden there was no way to deny it anymore. Everything that I've read and learned about pandemics and any sort of pandemic response is that the scientists should lead the pandemic response, not the politicians. 
And when you go back in time and look at history and whenever politicians have led the response instead of scientists, the impact and the outcomes of the pandemic have been much, much worse and much more severe than they needed to be if instead of you had built policy that was based on what the scientists uh, were suggesting. Part of the challenge is for a new disease uh, and especially one you know like COVID that's very complicated. It's not that, or I should actually say very complex. It's not that you have to do 17 things and you solve it. It's that you're going to have a whole bunch of different things happen that have to change continually and containing it and then ultimately suppressing or eliminating it is a function of a whole bunch of things that you do along the way. In the U.S. right now, we're seeing the consequences of uh, listening to or or being led by politicians rather than being led by science uh, in the context of this disease. And, you know, again, I, I could be totally wrong. There could be a magnificent, wonderful thing that just magically happens in the fall. Uh, I'm personally not counting on that. I'm not counting on another, which is why today even I just actually wrote about Apple. I'm saying, all right, thanks for the trillions. But the, I think the magical thinking is, is transformed to a playbook for where America has gone since the 80s of the Fed and throw money at it. Because the text, you know, that part of the textbook seems to keep repeating which is, you know, we're going now the Japan monetary way, which is, ooh, what followed 1918 pandemic in the U.S., even though we started, it was the Roaring Twenties. And we basically have had the Roaring Twenties from March to June. We comp- Maybe the cloud compressed the Roaring Twenties to just the NASDAQ 100. And instead of eight years, you know, 20 to you know, crash and whatever it was in the late 20s and depression after. I think what I'm worried about today, if you're asking me what I was going to panic about today, and I think you're saying the same thing, not to panic, but there's what you're worried about today is this magical thinking that, oh, what followed was the roaring 20s. But what had to happen was a lot of hard decisions to get everybody partying like the roaring 20s. And we, the Nasdaq's been partying like the roaring 20s already did. And the rest of what, 490 companies in the S&P are still in trouble and so like our our context for things is way out of whack so the magical thinking just seems like so unlikely at this point and so how does that affect community bring it back to the book how do you think how what would you what's your idea around community in a world that magical thinking may not work well how do you brace for this you know the positive side of it is that we have really significant and robust and relatively accessible, not broadly accessible, but relatively accessible uh, technology infrastructure for linking people together in 2020 that, you know, in 1980, we didn't have. In 1950, was non-existent. So that's a positive because the virtual element of it is so much stronger. The opposite side of that, though, is uh, humans want to be together and humans want to have physical interaction with each other. And many of the existing structures in both our society and our economy uh, rely on that. And of course, community is an elemental part of that, whether you're thinking about sports uh, and your you know, af- uh, affinity and community around a, a sports team, uh, or you're thinking about 
a band or music or a type of music. There's, there's so many pieces of our existence that are wired around physical presence and physical interaction. Uh, there is a line of thinking and behavior and you see it, right? Uh, the, you know, baseball is going to be baseball again. And the, you know, major league baseball starts playing and now they're playing, but they don't have fans in the, in, in the bleachers. And so they're, you know, watching on TV. Okay. We have technology. We can enjoy baseball this way. And is it the same? And do people get the satisfaction out of it? And oops, uh, four people on the team tested, tested positive for COVID. So both of those teams are now out of commission and they're in quarantine. You know, it's a very, very, very difficult thing to get back to that in the physical space. And for me, what I'm doing is trying really hard uh, to embrace the dynamics in the virtual space across many different communities and experiment with new tools and new approaches to interactions to see what works. By the way, recognizing that for many people, uh, there is uh, cumulative exhaustion that comes from that. Right. By uh, I said that earlier this week, I had my own version of this on on Wednesday. I tweeted out, "I'm so glad it's Friday." Hmm. Just you write the exhaustion by Wednesday of just even three days of the intensity of everything virtual without that human, you know, dynamic and without the the shifts and the phase shifts from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Uh, so I, look, I think it's I I, I think it's a, a a moment in time of great. Uh, distress combined with a moment in time where many new and interesting things will emerge uh, that work around this dimension of community, whether it's startup community or any other domain. And my encouragement to everybody in my world is two things, right? One is embrace the dynamic, like recognize that this is what it is and in embracing it, it, you can also feel that it sucks. I mean, you know, the idea of low-level or, you know, or low-grade depression, which is a phrase you're starting or we're starting to hear from people. I feel like I have low-grade depression. Nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that. Like, you know, that, that is a pretty normal emotion to this. If you're, you know, a single parent with three kids that are all in K through 12 and you have a full-time job... And in your house, you have three bedrooms uh, for your kid and a bedroom for you, and that's it. Or maybe you have two bedrooms for your kids and a bedroom for you. Uh, you're under enormous stress right now, even if you have a full-time job, because you're trying to deal with all this shit. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be exhausted at a whole different level. Yeah. And understanding that that's what's going on, right? It's not just... Uh, in, in our world of entrepreneurship and investment and, and sort of the, the people you're talking to, yeah, it's nice to you know, have a big house and have resources, but the vast majority of people are uh, under more pressure and different kind of pressure. Uh, but then go to whole industries, right? You talk about the 490 of the S&P 500, right? That uh, uh, 10 of the S&P 500 is doing great or 20 is doing great and the other 480 are uh, it's five. It's really the five, Brad, are up thirty-eight percent this year, and the other four ninety-five are down eight percent as a group. Is yeah. that not so, fucking mind-boggling? Well, it's, it, it, here, here you go. You ready for the next step? What happens? What happens in twenty twenty-one and twenty twenty-two when companies' leases start rolling off, and 
companies for the last four months have been talking to their landlords, startups, big companies, whatever, and saying, uh, we can't use our office space. We can't get into the office space. You know, give us a break. And the landlords have been basically saying, fuck you. You, you know, we have a contract, pay me, pay me rent. Um, the number of companies in my world that are rethinking their long-term office dynamics is high 90%. I don't think there's any company that's not rethinking it. Maybe it's all of them. Um, the vast majority of them are going to have much less commercial office space in the future. I don't think I'm unique in that in terms of my investments. I think that's probably a pretty broadly distributed phenomenon. And in the U.S., in the last, what, four or five years, the amount of new commercial office space that's been built is enormous. What happens when there's a massive supply-demand imbalance on commercial office space and leases start rolling off? Hmm. <laughs> and nobody's, nobody's thinking about that very much. And there's probably dozens the, of those kinds of things that are in front of us. The fantasy thinkers are thinking, well, companies will need more space because of the new rules of distance. So there is, just like with the, the virus itself, there is some fantasy thinking here in the headlight. And I'm like, guys, if you have fantasy thinking, hit the fucking bed. Now, in major cities, people are in denial. This is the panic thing. Like you need, it might be too late to panic because if you thought your price was this price, go, go try and get that price. Like it's not there. There's mystery prices. So yes, I totally agree with you, but I can't save the people. I just got lucky in many ways other than our companies that do have some high leases uh, that I'm not in that business. But man, that is a, that is just an overbuilt beast that this country is going to have to deal with. So so community will look different in that way, too. It's going to be way Correct. more virtual. Correct. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to be an advocate for everybody becoming a remote worker everywhere on the planet. Dynamics will be different. I'd, you know, I'd look at, I got two, I say I own and operate two millennials, but I think they're Gen Z and Brad, you know them. So it's so interesting <laughs> I, I think, to I think see. I think they own and operate you, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> they really, so I'm looking at my two kids because, you know, everybody's different. So we drew lucky long straw, you know, Max, you know, dropped out, but you know, never liked school. Rachel finished with the high honors. We were lucky, you know, so the kids are at the end of what I have to spend and Alan have to spend. They're really self-starters and happy go lucky. You can talk to them. You can reason with them. They're at that age where, you know, they're not thrilled, but they're not complaining because they have some context. You know, Alan, I don't have to look out for them. Uh, they understand the risks uh, of bringing it back to the house if they hang out with their friends. Uh, Ellen and I have multiple places so we can spread out if we all need it. And I got my two kids. And the way we did it was just communication. It was like, hey, guys, this is a year of hell. And I know it, it, some, it's just like the faster you guys come to realize this next year is going to be uncomfortable, the easier it will be to deal with it. Like, don't get into any magical thinking about this because – you know, they're going to put dates in front of you and you don't want to be that person. You need to have set, you know, reasonable expectations for what this country is going to deal with. And guess what? They're working in their rooms. You know, I set up an office for them. They don't want to use the office. They're just working. No one can tell them. Was like, We're just learning. You know, they're comfortable working from their bedrooms. And, you know, I'm not going to, there is no right or wrong. They don't even want to work at a desk in this new world. And 
maybe the new productivity is three to four hours out of somebody and just get their best productivity. Maybe, you know, so I've had enough guests on to know that like, really, were you really getting 10 hours from someone that was in an office? You're probably getting three or four. So there's so many things around community and the um, productivity that are just not factored in. That's right. And yeah, we will look back, you know, for those of us still alive in 2030, which I hope I am, when we look back at 2020, it will be a surprise to me if we look back and say, yeah, that was a really shitty year, but nothing really changed. Yeah, it's too long now. Too long. I'm not, uh, you know, luckily I get to read the markets and see people's, you know, the markets are a little, unfortunately, the public markets have way less signal than they used to because it's been so politicized. So luckily for me, I, I have a different type of network on top of just prices. So I, I can't see how this um, doesn't continue to spread through the system. And, and the number one thing is structurally the bundling and unbundling that's happening around, you know, industry, whether it's commercial or whether it's the S&P 500, or whether it's, um, you know, how people work and it's food, all the basics, you know, and this other word for now, I was going to see if you could chime in on this is like, I've never seen in any history book, uh, you've got gold, Bitcoin. It's this rare asset thing where companies have become, because they're digital, they've become, even though they're a cash flow thing, they are going up at the same time that all the other signals say we're at war. You know, gold, dollar week, bonds exploding still, and guns going up, uh, food going up, all the defensive things. And then the most expensive assets in the world, right? Apple, Amazon, Twilio. It's ne I've never seen that. And so, so I've tried to call it just a rare asset boom. And this is the first time ever that actual companies are rare assets. Right. Well, you know, if, if you're a seller of a company and somebody wants to pay you 40 times 2021 revenue for the company, that's a pretty good trade if you're a seller. Yeah. Every day right. I wake up and sell something because I go, this is stupid. But if you're if you're a buyer, well, the people are buying that right now. And that's, I've, you know, it, it's completely perplexing. Um, but, uh, you know, I've never been somebody who's tried to predict uh, the, the macro uh, and you live in the macro. Uh, you know, my question to you is why why all of a sudden, you know, five years ago, uh, eight times uh, for 12 months revenue was a really healthy valuation, maybe 10 or 12 times for an extreme valuation. And suddenly, you know, people talk about 40 times uh, next year's revenue as a reasonable valuation without much debate. Like, I, I kind of get your argument that people are saying these are rare assets. Um, right. The only thing that I've learned, and I'm not trading on it, I'm still selling against myself. I mean, I sold Apple today. I've sold anything weak. Uh, but you know, anything weak, I just keep trimming, trimming, and anything strong now I'm trimming because even though they're rare assets, the signals that I'm getting from the true rare assets, the ones with limited supply, and I know Apple has limited supply, right? They have endless cash. They have, they don't have to print stock. They don't even have to buy back stock anymore. But I think, I think the only explanation I have, Brad, is that the Fed is, is this, you know, the rare asset that joined the other rare assets this time, you know, from baseball cards to uh, certain uh, locations of real estate to gold to, you know, the food, you know, the reimagining stuff is that 
you know, people are looking, people with all this liquidity and cash, I'd rather be an Apple and take 50% risk than be in a, a merge in my next commercial real estate building, which may never work again. So it's kind of like money, la- we're forcing money laundering into digital assets. <laughs> That's the only it. thing I can think of, right? It's a good line. <laughs> the the only thing that we're doing is pushing people to do speculative things. And the only speculative thing that makes sense to people, because if you look at like Simon Property Group or you look at Boeing, doesn't matter how much money they print, the people have caught on to the game that this is not a typical recession. Those stocks are not moving, right? The airlines are not moving. So the only things going up are these incredibly rare assets that are digital based. And you own a bunch of them and I own a bunch of them. And we're like, when do you sell? It's like... It's like a hot potato game knowing that they're huffing and puffing and pushing these rare assets. And people don't want to own gold. Like they don't want to believe we're at war. They don't want to like own 0% interest rate bonds, but they're doing it. People are doing really dumb things. And so I don't think people see, we were doing dumb things panicking in March financially, and now we're doing really dumb things not panicking in August financially. So I worry about that one too. Have you thought about that at all? Or do you kind of agree with what I'm saying? Uh, I haven't thought very hard about it because I don't feel like I know enough to, to, to weigh in. Right. Okay. And you know, what, what you're, what you're, what you're saying is fascinating and logical to me, but it's in the category of me learning from you versus me having a bunch of things uh, to assert against it because uh, I, I look at it and interestingly, right. I look at it as an early stage investor. Um, the dynamics from the early stage is no different than it ever was. Don't you think, uh, right? Like limited supply, just, you know, negotiate eye to eye, know what the cap table is. Like I've never been more bullish on early stage investing. And so, you know, the the tail end of it, when you're talking about where, you know, pick your company, Apple, Amazon, whatever it is today, you know, that's, that's, that's not where my brain is in terms of understanding uh, and not where I spend my time in terms of understanding value. And if, you know, if somebody told me that airline stocks were going through the roof, um, I would say, I don't understand that. <laughs> if somebody yeah. said airline stocks are not moving, okay, I, I kind of get that, but I would expect airline stocks to be uh, going way, way down because I think the whole notion of how we travel uh, is going to have to change and the dynamics of how, you know, it's not, we're, we're not suddenly going to be back to where we were uh, with, with air travel in three months. No, that's halt and catch fire. Airlines are halt and catch fire right now, meaning they've halted, they're on fire but they're going to catch fire again. Uh, that's just, that's how much intervention is. The airlines are on their way to zero again. Uh, they're huffing and puffing and just creating more uh, inflammable objects. Did you like that show, Halt and Catch Fire? Pretty much my favorite show. Loved it. Fucking Anybody. loved it. Why didn't you tell me to watch that show? I did. Oh my God. I wish that show kept going. Yeah. Four, four years was, was one year too little of that show. And uh, if nobody's watched Halt and Catch Fire, it's on AMC, and it's basically the long arc story of the computer industry and the creation of the computer industry, but fictionalized and uh, spectacular characters. Spectacular. It was like a documentary. It was like Dallas, but well done. <laughs> but for Dallas for nerds. <laughs> Dallas for nerds. <laughs> um, what's changed the most? around venture capital investment. I know since I have you, I got to just switch. I didn't want to bring this topic and we'll end with therapy, but what's changed the most? We can't end with therapy because I got to go in a minute because I got another oh, okay. What's yeah. changed the most? In what time period? Just in the last 20 years. <laughs> uh, too much? Well. Okay, the last, the last since the crash <laughs> in 08. 
I guess you're saying like community. So, you know, I think, and and you've also said about work from home. So maybe you've covered this, but. But, but here's a, here's a big one, right? In 2000 and uh, in, well, 1999, everybody wanted to be a VC. Uh, In 2001, the internet bubble collapsed and decimated venture capital and decimated VC and VC firms and Mm -hmm. decimated, you know, tons and tons of companies that were once worth enormous amounts of money. Uh, And out of that emerged a new generation of entrepreneurs and VCs, but a huge number of the people that had gotten involved in that time period disappeared, didn't didn't come back, went did different things. Even by 2007, there weren't many seed investors. And you remember that because you were starting to make investments as an angel investment. Correct. In that period of time, and there, you know, there were twenty people that were making lots of investments at that level, not two thousand. Correct. My mentor were you. Um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Frenchman. Oh my God, I'm having a scene. Cla- I mean, yeah, you had Jeff Clavier. You had yeah, Clavier. Clavier. Uh, yeah, you had, you had uh, Josh Koppelman and his gang at first yeah. round. You had Mike Maples, right? I mean, there were yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you had successful uh, entrepreneurs making investments, right? Uh, uh, Mark Pincus, Reed Hoffman, uh, Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz. Like they were doing stuff in that time period before they started Andreessen mm-hmm. Horowitz. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so you had sort of entrepreneurs making some investments. You had this thing called Super Angels. But it wasn't really until about 2012 that you started having a massive increase of two categories of capital. At one end, the early stage money. Mm-hmm. And that the, the number of people and the amount of capital uh, grew has grown and grown and grown every year. And at the other end of the spectrum, which was late stage, uh, you saw an incredible increase of the amount of capital. And that late stage capital is still considered venture capital. Some of it was coming from firms that were previous you know, public market buyers moving downstream, but there were a lot of new institutional activity. And so on the private side of the venture capital world, uh, there's an enormous amount of capital. And the exit dynamic shifted because uh, in addition to acquisitions, while you know, for a period of time it was pretty dry for IPOs, there are IPOs again, but you had this massive new entrant, which was private equity buyers. And all of a sudden, the evolution up the, up the capital stack for a company uh, had a lot more options at the beginning, <laughs> you know, a decent number of options in the middle, but then a lot more options as the companies got bigger and became more mature. And that, that has been, you know, navigating that, by the way, not just in the U.S., but glo- globally, has probably been one of the biggest changes. Yes. And I think, so I guess if I had time, I don't know, maybe it'll be, sorry, I'd say what's going to change the most going forward. For me, it's like, I think people will be surprised how big a demand for the Teslas. Once you give people fractional ownership, you know, uh, which we have now, uh, you know, Vanguard and BlackRock hid these, they, they, they hid complexity in a bad way. They said, oh, you have 500 stocks, just buy them all together. They had the technology. They had fractional shares for everybody. And then Robinhood magically, uh, even though they didn't start it for this reason, it was all about just giving people choice, unbundled 500 stocks so that people realized 490 of those things are turds. Um, who wants 490 turds? Um, so, and wait till you 
wait till now you onboard a billion other people that can buy fractional shares. You think they're going to buy Exxon or Airlines? No, they're going to want to buy Tesla, Peloton, Twilio. You know what I mean? Like this is out of the box. And I think that's another reason why these 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 rare finance, these rare Nasdaq assets are going up. What do you think? It's do you think SoftBank was the top of that stack? That that that, that how, private how just, equity stack was SoftBank the top. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know. It's going to be interesting five years from now to reflect and see what the moment was because I don't think the I don't think the dust on that has settled. Based on your last rant, just tell me where to wire the money so that I can put it into the Howard Lindsay Investment Fund. It, it's Ellen. I think it's time to back her. So I will send you her emailing address. <laughs> and I will just say, I think it's SPACs. I don't think SoftBank was the top. I think SoftBank was the top of that that sector of late stage private equity. And I think those people like Chama saw something. And I think SPACs are the new SoftBanks. Right? Get these companies public rather than in T row prices and Fidelity's hand. So I think that's going to be the biggest change going forward now that you bring that up is uh, why are we seeing all these SPACs? Because why did we see all those stupid deals of 300 million from one firm? Uh, so I think that's something that may stay. Anyways, you're the man. Thanks for helping me think through some things. It's always about this me. Always um, fun. And, and I'm glad it's about you because you're a special guy. <laughs> oh, all right, oh. buddy. You are the man. Say hi to Amy. And uh, thanks for always for helping and pitching you're sp- in. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to end by telling people to buy my book. Oh, yeah. Buy your book. Uh, I'll link to it. It's the easiest way is go to Amazon, uh, Brad. I thought that that's the only place you can buy books anymore. Right. Now that your publisher is no longer. So Amazon.com, <laughs> Brad Feld, the Startup Community Way. Uh, I have a special code. You pay $1 more because it's really clogs up my email if you ask me. So don't ask me. Go to Amazon.com. Thanks, my man. See ya. See ya. Oh, Canuti. Hey. Canuti the cutie. All right. I kept everybody longer, but, and maybe I'll have to edit that out because I promised therapy, but I think I got better. I got my own therapy. You've never met Brad or have you? I don't know. I th- I feel like I have, uh, but uh, unless he came to Phoenix about 10, 12 years ago, I don't think I've met him. I don't think he came to Phoenix, but we've been investing together that long. What uh, what'd you think? I think he's great. Think about how he thinks about the macro science mm-hmm. and technology. Hey, if it doesn't, if it's not related to those two, I don't want any of the macro shit. I don't want to know what's happening with, you know, he, the, you know, Math is the math. People are going to behavior is fucking, he's not a behavioral guy. He's like, okay, people are nuts. That's his look <laughs> at people. Cause I'm nuts. Here's what's interesting. Science and technology. And that's his macro. And that's what's made him such a great micro investor is he understands science, math, you know, MIT that just have a special skill. His special skill is focusing on what he knows, which is science and math. And have you watched Halt and Catch Fire yet? No, I have not. Oh, come on, dude. No, I have all people. <laughs> Mr. Tinkerer, please. Uh, all right, I it's will. A homework assignment. I promise I will Everybody, watch Everybody, halt and catch fire. If you're going to listen to the show and enjoy it more, uh, invest in, in that show. I think you'll enjoy everything we talk. I think you'll enjoy investing. I think you'll understand rare assets, how technology is a rare asset, and how it'll help you become a better investor, even though it's a fun drama with lots of, uh, lots of sex and stuff. Nice. Yeah. All right, everybody. Panic with friends. You can go click, please. This is we do two a week, so you don't have to listen to them all, but I think you'll like a lot of them if you like this stuff. So 
click follow, subscribe on Apple or Spotify. You can search StockTwits, you know, the uh, distributor and part of the StockTwits network, you know, which I'm a co-founder. The search my name, Howard Lindzen. Uh, go to Spotify. It's quite simple. Just search. And if you like uh, what I have to say, go to my free blog, howardlinson.com, subscribe, and you get something every morning, 9 a.m. Eastern. Canute, did I miss anything? No, I think you covered it. Appreciate it. All right, buddy. Thanks. Thank you.